Dr. Patrick Carroll is the chief medical officer of Hims and Hers, a US telehealth company which he helped go public in a $1.6 billion SPAC deal. Hims and Hers focuses on many taboo health issues, such as sexual health issues, hair loss, and mental health. Dr. Carroll graduated from Dartmouth Medical School and was previously CMO of Walgreens. We talk about how he got to where he is, what advice he gives to young physician leaders, and why working in primary care was crucial for his career. I hope you enjoy. Would you mind telling me a little bit about your story, particularly how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I, I get asked that question fairly frequently, and, and the way I would describe it is I've had a non-linear career path. All the pieces don't seem to fit until I look back and I realize all the experiences actually do tie in with each other. So, you know, going way back, I came from a family of eight, it's a big Irish Catholic family, and um, did well in, in college, and when it came to plot, time to apply to med school. I, I got an early admittance to Dartmouth Medical School and my dad says, congratulations, now figure out how to pay for it because we had no money, literally. And so I, I signed up for a program called the National Service Corps, which I'm not even sure is even in existence today. What it was uh, targeted to is uh, paying for uh, young uh, students and, and medical students uh, tuition with a monthly stipend as long as you agree to work in an underserved area. And so I was approached by the federal government my senior year of college, and and they showed me brochures of little towns in New England with foliage and and white churches. And I said, well, I want to be a family physician and I want to work in a little town. So perfect, sign me up. Uh, Of course, the first lesson I learned in life, never trust the federal government, uh, because what happened was uh, I got the scholarship. I went to Dartmouth Medical School. I got the monthly stipend and it was great. I, I was probably one of the richest ones of my classmates with that stipend coming in. And then um, lo and behold, when I finished my residency in family medicine, I got a computer printout from the government and there were no little towns in Vermont or New Hampshire or Northern New England uh, with white chapels and foliage to practice in. It was all Indian health service sites. So there I was, uh, finished with my residency. Uh, my wife, fortunately, was an OB nurse, so she had flexibility to move anywhere. And we essentially picked a uh, site to pay back my four years unseen. So it ended up being on the Navajo Reservation in Shiprock, New Mexico. I interviewed over the phone. I didn't even go out there to, to, to look at the site. And quite honestly, I chose it because it looked like a neat area of the country. It looked like there was great hiking and great ski areas by nearby. So my wife and I packed up our one and three-year-old, took our journey out to the West, um, sight unseen. We did not know what we were getting into. Uh, we pulled up <clears throat> on the reservation, the Navajo Reservation, and it was very different, uh, more desolate than any other area I've ever lived in, but it had its own beauty. Um, so we moved into our housing, which is part of the, the compound around the hospital. And for the next uh, four years, practiced primary care. And my wife was the OB nurse there. She loved her work. I did everything out there. So with the Indian Health Service at that time, you know, you did operative um, obstetrics. You did a lot of OB. You did full-scope primary care. You were in the ICU. So it was almost like doing a four-year fellowship after my family medicine residency. I loved it. And the one thing I learned at that time is that you could deliver really high level care for a underserved population with extremely limited resources and get great quality outcomes. The reason why I mentioned that is I was 
involved with population health before that term was even coined. So we had such limited resources. When you rounded on patients in the morning, you said, you know what, I think this patient needs a CAT scan. We didn't have a CAT scanner, or certainly the MRI technology was not available at that time. But you had to justify in front of all your other physician colleagues why you were going to spend money to send them to the local hospital to get a CAT scan. So you had to justify every penny you spent, and um, you had to deliver high-level care, and you were accountable for both quality but also cost of care. So true population health before anybody even thought of population health. So after four years of the Indian Health Service, I actually um, settled back in northern New England, where I thought I was going to be from the beginning. And I, I practiced in Concord, New Hampshire, for over 25 years doing family medicine, really traditional primary care, you know, nursery to nursing home, 30 to 35 patients per day, a panel of patients of 3,500, uh, set up a small family practice with myself, another colleague. So I really enjoyed primary care practice in the very traditional way, rounding in the hospital, seeing patients five days a week, hoping, hoping they didn't call at night uh, because we were just open Monday through Friday. And then on weekends, you know, you had an answering service and occasionally you had to see them in the emergency room, but very traditional primary care. Uh, along the way, when I was in Concord, I took a lot of leadership roles in utilization management and, and leadership roles at the hospital and how to manage large groups of patients with, with payers and learned quite a bit with that. Also took a role for two years as a chief medical officer for Tufts Health Plan, a, a really neat health plan that had moved up into New Hampshire, but I kept my primary care practice full scope uh, going at the time. So I, I, I learned a lot about primary care. I learned about the payer world with my role at Tufts Health Plan, but I also learned about leadership roles, particularly when it came to utilization management. So all of those pieces kind of fit in later in my career. So really after all of those years in practice, um, back in 2009, my uh, former one of my former colleagues from way back at Shiprock, New Mexico, reached out to me and said, "Pat, um, we'd love for you to do a two-year project with Indian Health Service." You know, he knew I had experience in not only primary care but a subspecialty in adolescent medicine, and he basically said, "We need you for a two-year project. There's a high suicide rate among adolescent youth on the Navajo Reservation." Um, could you come out here and set up a network of school-based health clinics to screen and treat uh, adolescents and actually even younger than adolescents for uh, depression and get interventions going with them? So it was very interesting. It was like back to the, to the future for me. My wife and I, as my last child was going off to college, pulled up stakes in Concord, New Hampshire and went back to the same place I practiced 25 years before. Um, in the Navajo area in Shiprock, New Mexico. It was the most rewarding two years of my career. You know, my wife went back to practicing OB. I actually worked as an adolescent medicine specialist setting up school-based health clinics. We did a lot of screening for suicidality, anxiety, and depression right out at the schools. The interesting thing was on the Navajo area, in order to practice, in order to participate in sports, the kids had to have a school uh, pre-participation physical. So we actually ended up doing a lot of uh, behavioral health screening as part of that physical. Uh, more important than listening to the heart and lungs was actually to assess where the stresses were, uh, what was going on in the home, what were their risk factors for both uh, depression, but also substance abuse. And so massive screening uh, that we had done. And then we 
brought out counselors as well as a referral network uh, for psychi- to psychiatry if that was needed um, at the central hospital. So really set up a population health focused uh, school-based health clinic network. Loved the work. It was very rewarding. Then I got kind of reached out by Walgreens, which is an entirely different aspect of my career. This huge pharmacy company that was actually getting into healthcare, they had set up 500 of these retail clinics. So if you think about retail clinics at the time, they were small, 200 to 300 square feet uh, spaces within a Walgreens store, and they did very limited scope of care. So things like colds and flus. And so customers who come into the store, they could get on-demand care very convenient, available anytime the store was open. And it was very well received um, by our customers, but also brought in a lot of foot traffic into Walgreens. The one thing I realized uh, once I came to Walgreens as a chief medical officer initially to oversee the retail clinics was that for Walgreens, it wasn't a, a, a great value add other than the foot traffic they didn't benefit from those referrals as you start screening for more patients with risk factors. Um, and I saw health systems would really benefit from those referrals, right? The imaging studies, the referrals into primary care providers. And so I, I brought in a strategy to actually transition the retail clinics from Walgreens to health systems. So think of like an advocate Aurora or Vanderbilt. They would run the retail clinics, employ the nurse practitioners in the Walgreens space, and they would benefit from the referrals into their system. So it was really good for Walgreens because they got away from the responsibility and the cost of running retail clinics. They still got the foot traffic into the store. They got a closer relationship with some of these major health systems around pharmacy programs. And it was great for the health systems. They garnered the referrals. So we made this transition from the 500 retail clinics and transitioned virtually all of them to health systems. So as as I kind of worked towards my own obsolescence at Walgreens as we transitioned these clinics, I actually uh, got more and more involved with the healthcare strategy and eventually became the chief medical officer for all of Walgreens. So I learned a lot about the pharmacy programs, the 340B programs, um, but also about creating a strategy where we made Walgreens into the healthcare neighborhood destination. And my last year and a half at Walgreens, we actually brought in practices into the store. And one of the greatest relationships that I started at Walgreens was with a very large managed service organization called Village MD. Um, the reason why that worked for Walgreens, Village would come in, take a pr- uh, set up a primary care practice in 2,500 to 3,000 square feet in a Walgreens store. And then all of those prescriptions that were written, um, many of those were captured by Walgreens. So Walgreens got the pharmacy lift. They got the, uh, and what Village MD got was the support of the pharmacist to help with adherence, and they got great locations. So we initially did a pilot of six of those sites. And then after I left Walgreens in May of 2019, that relationship has really uh, matured and grown. I think Walgreens has now invested close to $6 billion in Village MD. So they see the model that works. So I was very proud of, of, of starting that relationship. So really out of the blue, I actually got recruited by a telehealth startup called Hims and Hers. 
tell you the truth, I wasn't looking for a new position at that time, but it fascinated me, you know, the startup world and so much area of San Francisco. And I saw that telehealth could be the next iteration of consumer facing care. And I didn't anticipate the pandemic was coming, but I just saw that, gosh, you can deliver care in a virtual environment, uh, really manage about 80 to 90% of the primary care conditions in a virtual environment. And it is very consumer friendly. So when I went out and I interviewed for Hims and Hers, what I realized is that at the time they had a very limited scope of care. It was more around hair loss and sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, some uh, dermatology. Um, but the company committed uh, through their CEO to expand scope of care. And so they, they followed through on the commitment and would really added about 50 different lines of services. All the acute episodic care conditions that we treated in retail clinics, we brought in on our platform. And then really the thing I'm most enthused about, about eight months ago, we launched behavioral health, treating anxiety and depression in a virtual environment. The reason why we added all those services is that six months into the job at Hims and Hers, the pandemic came and our customers were actually looking for healthcare access for things like urinary tract infections or pharyngitis or screening for COVID, as well as for anxiety and depression. The demographic we serve, which is primarily millennials and younger, have really struggled with anxiety and depression through the pandemic. Uh, some studies show that 30 to 40% of that demographic is actually having issues with that. And Hims and Hers is really keen on providing access to care, price transparent care for stigmatized conditions. So you think about sexual dysfunction, dermatology, but what's more stigmatized condition than behavioral health? There's nothing else out there like that. So that's what we launched. And I've been excited with the work we've done at Hims and Hers. It's a really different model. Today, we don't take any insurance. Customers pay out of pocket. And what they get for, let's say, a price of 30 to $35 a month is access to a virtual provider 24-7, 365 days a year to actually treat conditions that they have concerns about. And most of those visits are asynchronous. In other words, it's just an adaptive interview based on evidence-based guidelines with a provider. If you qualify and if the providers feel like you'd benefit from medications, the medications actually get prescribed and sent to them from our cloud-based pharmacy. So think of HIMS and HERS as a fully integrated health delivery network, both from the brand uh, to the provider, the virtual provider network, to pharmacy fulfillment, to regular follow-up with those providers. So I've been with HIMS and HERS since May of 2019. It's been an exciting journey. You know, we've grown significantly. I helped take the public, the company public in January of 2021. Uh, today, we have over 500,000 active subscribers on our platform. And we see three to 4,000 patients per day for all of those conditions we offer. So very nonlinear career path for sure. Um, I've done a lot of different things, both traditional primary care, leading a multi-specialty group, leading an integrated delivery network, uh, leading these risk-based models, particularly in Medicare and Medicare Advantage, working in the pharmacy world at Walgreens as chief medical officer, and now in the startup world in the virtual environment with hims and hers. So it's it's been an interesting journey. It's uh, 
one that I never would have anticipated when I was practicing traditional primary care, seeing those 35 patients per day. But looking back, everything kind of fit in. You know, my experience on the payer side, my experience in primary care, my experience in managing risk groups, and then my experience at Walgreens and consumer-facing care, and now with the virtual health experience uh, at Hims and Hers. Throughout your story, there seems to be a common theme where early on you were quite early in population health and providing kind of holistic care to people in the adolescence. You said you included, uh, you know, a, a mental health check to the kind of physical they were having. Now, again, you've come into telehealth and virtual clinics. And that, again, was quite early on it and, and, and before a, a, a good opportunity with COVID as well. Yeah. Um, what do you think it's been about how you kind of see opportunities or how you behave that means that you have been able to be quite early on these kinds of opportunities and, and get, in a, get in the driving seat? Yeah, I think it's not that I have a vision of what's going to happen in the future of healthcare, but my experience in primary care really grounded me of, of with what are the challenges in healthcare today and what are the needs and what are the opportunities? And so, you know, when I speak sometimes in front of groups, um, you know, whether that be at Walgreens or even at Hims and Hers, as I speak externally, um, fairly often I'll have folks come up to me after after the presentation and, and younger physicians and say, well, gosh, you know, I'd like to be chief medical officer at Walgreens or I'd like to lead a telehealth company. Um, I'm just finishing my residency. Should I just get my MBA and just just jump right in? And I say, don't do that. I think it's really important if you want to do something as a physician leader to actually practice, you know, I practiced for over 35 years until I started at Hims and Hers. I was still practicing at Walgreens. I was volunteering one uh, Saturday a month at a free clinic in downtown Chicago. So when you actually practice and you get a keen appreciation of all the challenges in healthcare and you can anticipate what the issues are. And so for me in primary care practice, even in the latter part of my career, I saw that we were going to more of a risk-based world and the payers were shifting that risk to primary care providers and saying, we want you to take risk on the finance as well as the quality outcomes. And I saw the challenge for the average primary care physician. It's the most difficult job in the world. And so what I also saw is this ongoing phenomenon. We have an acute shortage of primary care in this country. We're probably about 50,000 primary care physicians short. And so I realized uh, both coming from a primary care background and then managing risk for large groups of patients, and then particularly at Walgreens, this has to be team-based care. You have to use pharmacists as part of the team. You need social workers. Uh, you need coaches who are just doing outreach. You know, on the Navajo Reservation, they, they had uh, folks who worked in the chapter houses, which are basically their 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 kind of central uh, area in each community, and and they would uh, identify who the high risk patients were, and, and then get them plugged in with care. So you need various members to manage uh, these patients who have high needs out in the community. So it's a matter of providing access to care using all these different team members to deliver high uh, value care. Um, I didn't anticipate the pandemic coming, obviously, but I did see the, the upside of telehealth. It's a very efficient system where, particularly in asynchronous, which is kind of an adaptive interview, you can deliver high quality care and a provider can see eight to 10 patients per hour 
and and work a lot more efficiently um, than if someone was going to come into a traditional primary care practice and that provider may be only to see two to three patients per hour. So you're able to use the labor force a lot more efficiently in virtual care and quite honestly, get out into rural and underserved uh, communities uh, through virtual health, as opposed to setting up brick and mortar practices in some of these rural and underserved communities. Financially, sometimes those models don't work. So it's not like I had a crystal ball, but I think everything I've done has been grounded in my primary care experience and then seeing where the gaps are and trying to understand how you fill those gaps in. Whilst asynchronous communication and, you know, having associated uh, healthcare professionals, you know, it, it makes sense from a managerial perspective, from an efficiency perspective, maybe even from outcomes. Do you ever get the feeling that sometimes that these kinds of efficiency upgrades, sometimes that you, you lose the kind of joy of medicine? So if you're, you know, you can see eight patients in an hour, but you're just chatting over uh, a chat messenger. Do, do you ever find that there's a, it, it's tricky with that, that it, it, it does ruin the job a little bit? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I did enjoy the personal interaction with patients, no doubt about it. And I think you do miss that when you do uh, virtual health. Um, so that's the downside. The upside is, though, we don't bill to insurance. Um, our EMR is home developed. So it is very, very both customer friendly, but also provider friendly. You know, I practice on five different EMRs, you know, the, the land of a thousand clicks with, with Epic and Cerner. And, and uh, to me, it's almost a tyranny of traditional EMRs, which really are time intensive. You know, they, we were on an electronic medical record my last 10 years of practice. And I spent more time looking at the screen than I did looking at the patient. So I think I was I was missing th that human interaction, even when I was in a brick and mortar practice. And so what we've seen is our providers love practicing off our platform, even though their interaction is virtual, they still have an interaction with patients and answer answer their questions and and provide them access to care and we're very grateful patients for that um, they don't have to wait you know 60 days to see a primary care provider a good lord try to identify a psychiatrist today to, to get to see it's really difficult 50 percent of psychiatrists don't even take insurance so i think there's a trade-off there uh, patients love the access to care they like the price transparency and the providers like the frictionless experience also. They can actually do a majority of their visits off a mobile device. They can fit it into times of the day that works for them. Most of them have day jobs, right? The average provider on our platform practices about 14 hours per week, and they can do it on their time and their schedule uh, without the hassle of blocking out large uh, blocks of time to see patients. So it's 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 been interesting. Our churn for our uh, virtual health providers, and we only have about three hundred fifty on our platform, is really low. They just love practicing um, in a different modality than their traditional practice. And these are folks who work in ERs, or hospitalists, or internists, or family physicians who work in traditional primary care practices. The jobs of your providers in, in what you just described, you know, working 14 hours a week asynchronously whenever they like, you know, a, a similar trend that we've seen is in, in the gig economy with things like Uber and Deliveroo. Do you ever see medicine moving more towards that kind of gig economy approach where people are just taking contracts up from all over the world, working when they like on what they like? Do you, do you see that model coming in? 
Absolutely. It is happening today. And so, for example, for our providers, these are non-exclusive relationships. If they want to practice on another telehealth platform, we say, fine, uh, work as much or as little as you want off our platform. So they love that kind of flexibility. Uh, you know, we don't have non-compete clauses, which I think are so antiquated. It, in a way, it is like a gig economy, right? The way that the challenge is, and when I came to hims and hers, my first priority was to put in a quality structure because I need to make sure those providers who are practicing 14 hours a week are provide are are following evidence-based guidelines, are having a positive interaction with our customers, with our patients, are prescribing appropriately, are referring that 10 or 15% of patients who are too complex for virtual health off the platform, or actually providing access to care for patients who are appropriate for our platform who they may not think that is appropriate. So we don't tell them how to practice, but we actually, the questions, the intake questions that the customers answered are all based on evidence-based guidelines that have been developed um, and informed by a great specialty advisor network that we've brought into hims and hers. And so what we've done is that we are able to track the quality of care on those encounters. We've done over 50,000 encounter reviews. We can identify outliers, those folks who are not practicing into the standard of cares that we've set up. Um, and we grade providers on five criteria. One is website manner. How, do you introduce yourself to the patient? Uh, are you having a positive interaction from the start? Are you following evidence-based guidelines? Are you prescribing appropriately? Are you referring appropriately? Is your note robust enough such that when the next provider picks up that chart, they can follow what the treatment course was? So the table stakes for us is quality of care. And I think as we've looked at virtual health exploding, we have to be able to show that the quality on a virtual health platform is as good, if not better, than a face-to-face. -face. And so that's table stakes for us. If we take maybe a use case for, um, for your service, so a male comes in, hair loss, they want something like topical minoxidil, which yeah. as far as I'm aware, uh, doesn't have crazy high risk profile, but maybe you can correct me on that. I mean, currently I'm guessing that there's some kind of clinician input into that decision, but do you see a time in which it's automated or you can, you know, you can use these kinds of AI technologies to remove the clinician from those kinds of very simple, low stakes um, procedures? Yeah. I love that term AI because it means so many different things to so many different folks. It's, it's, it's the buzzword out there now. It's uh, two buzzwords that I hear a lot is AI and socially determinants, uh, social determinants of health. I, I hear it everywhere, every conference I go. Um, so what really is AI? It's just really iterative, informed, uh, intelligent uh, screening is what it is. And we do that off our platform. We could call it AI. Uh, by gosh sakes, I think what we do is our intake forms are extremely robust. We're able to include and exclude patients who are appropriate, appropriate for our platform, get a full past medical history, identify risk factors, and tee all that up for the provider such that when the provider goes in there, takes that patient out of the queue and looks at the information they've been uh, presented to them, they can make a really informed, high quality decision in terms of care. So we use, in fact, AI every day when someone comes on our platform. Um, 
will we ever exclude physicians entirely or providers entirely from that process? I hope not. Even with great front-end questioning and AI, there's still a vital role for physicians to sort through the data and information. There are nuances to the answers of those questions that you need an experienced physician to sort through. Um, you know, for example, um, one of our more popular offerings is erectile dysfunction. If you actually look uh, at how many people in this country have erectile dysfunction, men, it's, it's pretty high. If you look at 30 year olds, it's up to 25 to 30% of some form of erectile dysfunction. And every uh, 10 years that increases by 10%. So 40 year olds, 40%, 50 year olds, almost 50%. Um, our questions though, are essentially a cardiovascular screen. You know, 70% of folks with erectile dysfunction have hyperlipidemia. So we ask about, you know, have you had a cholesterol check? We do a screen for any anginal type symptoms. If they have those, we get the immediate referrals off the platform. We screen for, are you, you know, do you have a history of diabetes? Is your diabetes under good control? What's your last hemoglobin A1C? So really we're doing more cardiovascular screen than I ever did in my, in my primary care practice just by bringing folks in um, who, who want and need uh, medications for erectile dysfunction. So um, that's pretty nuanced. You know, you can ask those questions, but without that provider looking at the data and sorting through that data, I think you're missing something and you're not going to reach that quality uh, benchmark that you want without the provider input. But do you see some low-hanging fruit in terms of very low risk profile, very simple kind of algorithmic interventions that, that you provide that you think could be automated? Um, I think, you know, sildenafil or the other uh, erectile dysfunction treatments, I think some of them do have some higher risks and can be associated with other things. But again, the hair loss example, do you, do you think that's something that needs a clinician to input on? Um, a lot of the germ conditions... A fairly low risk, um, hair loss, you're right. Um, but even on hair loss, it's, it's a fairly nuanced, uh, you know, flow and process. So you can come on our platform, you know, we screen now you're having androgenic hair loss. We want to make sure there's no other reasons for hair loss that the treatments won't be effective for. And then we provide, uh, our customers, uh, information so they can make an informed decision of what treatments they want. That's everything from minoxidil, which is essentially over the counter. You know, we, we offer that off our platform, but you don't need a prescription necessarily for that. And then we have a combination minoxidil and topical finasteride, which has been very well received. Uh, efficacy is higher than minoxidil alone. We think it's probably about 70 to 90% effective. Um, finasteride, Topical, though, is a prescription medication, so you do need a, uh, a prescription for that. And then there's everything right up to oral finasteride, which is one milligrams per day. Now, it's interesting, oral finasteride does have side, side effects of 1.5% of folks. There can be some sexual dysfunction. There's been some reports of depression on the medication. In some ways, it's a fairly controversial medication because of those side effects. So what we make sure is that all of those side effects are listed up front, and our customers come on and they can decide, do I want to take a pill every day with the risk of these side effects? Um, would I rather have a topical minoxidil and finasteride? I still get the benefit of finasteride. The absorption is less. The uh, DHT suppression is less on the topical. It's almost as effective as the pill. 
with a lesser side effect profile? Or do I want to just use minoxidil alone and not mess with finasteride at all? Um, minoxidil has even less side effects than a topical finasteride in minoxidil. So it's really allowing the customers to make an informed decision, making them aware of all the side effects, and then providing them a way to get back to our providers if they experience any of those side effects so we can work through that with them. So it seems simple, hair loss, but it's pretty nuanced because there's three different types of uh, medications you could choose, and including over-the-counter uh, shampoos that we, we off, offer that suppress some of the DHT. So it, it's not as simple as it appears on the surface, I'd say. So that's why I think we'll always need a provider, although we've made the process as frictionless as possible so you can actually access care in a, in a, in a smooth uh, way, as hassle-free as possible. With having, you know, such a good service and distribution and all of these things, do you ever see a role in the future for, you know, virtual clinics and startups like yours to start running their own trials? Like, of course, getting consent and things like that. But I think the spaces you're in, in this kind of taboo health industry, where potentially some of these things haven't received as much attention on women's and male's side as they should have done, there seems to be an opportunity. Absolutely. And it's something we we explore and talk about fairly often. we wouldn't probably do the trials ourselves. We'd probably partner with, uh, you know, health systems or researchers. If you, if you think of even what we do for hair loss, we probably do as much topical finasteride and minoxidil than many organizations in this country, probably more than the, your average dermatologist. So we have a huge data set out there. And the studies that support the use of that are out there. It should be more studies. And so we have that information. We haven't taken that step to doing it, but we have some really valuable information for some of these uh, conditions, even in behavioral health. You know, we do, many of our visits are synchronous, in other words, face-to-face, but for the very low-risk patients who are able to identify, we do asynchronous. And there's not a lot of studies out there about asynchronous versus synchronous. We've been able to show that the quality is the same but it'd be great to be able to do a study to show asynchronous modality for anxiety and depression on lower risk, who's appropriate for synchronous, how you compare the quality against both. Internally, we see the quality is the same, but to have an academic study about that, I think that would be hugely valuable. When you transition from your role as a full-time practicing physician into more of these kinds of leadership and management roles, what kind of things did you have to learn or pick up? You know, I learned a lot of lessons. One is um, you have to have some credibility. And so my years of practice gave me credibility. It's hard to stand in front of a physician group and say, okay, this is how you practice medicine. Do one, two, three, four, five. And then they would look back at me if I wasn't practicing or involved for years in primary care and say, well, you really don't know anything about healthcare. And, you know, you're just telling me to do these things. And you don't have an appreciation of how difficult it is to manage patients day in and day out. So I think the one thing I learned is you have to have credibility. Um, you know, you, you have to have some gravitas when it comes to getting in front of physicians and actually incenting them to do uh, what you want them to get done. Uh, the second thing I learned is you have to be very clear on the mission. Um, uh, we, we can tell physicians to do X, Y, and Z, but if, if you haven't clearly uh, defined what the mission is, um, they're going to come back and say, why? Why am I doing that? What's the purpose? So uh, define the mission. And I think the third part is what I learned is 
have to give providers the tools to succeed. And uh, that could be anything from an EMR that actually is functional to really incenting them financially for delivering high quality. You just can't say, well, we want you to hit these measures. There has to be some upside for them. And you have to uh, create compensation structures that actually incent them to do the right thing in terms of value-based care. And then I think for many, many physicians, the currency isn't just financial, it's time. Give them some time to actually work on managing higher risk patients. Carve out 45 minutes for a visit for those complex patients. Don't expect them to manage a, a diabetic with you know impending end-stage renal disease and hypertension in 15 minutes. You're not gonna make any progress on that. Um, so I think what's important, particularly in a multi-specialty group, is that you have physicians who are given the time to deliver high-quality care and then have access to care by hiring advanced practitioners, perhaps, to see those acute episodic conditions. Um, and then also have a telehealth network such that, you know, if someone has a urinary tract infection, you can do that in a telehealth visit. Why, why jam up the schedule of a high-functioning internist who really needs to focus on those high-risk you know, the top 10 or 15% of patients who are high risk um, to, to manage their care. So for me, you know, what I've learned is define the mission, align incentives, give them the tools to succeed. If you combine all of that, I think you're going to see, and I have seen the results will follow. Have there been any books or resources that you found helpful along the way? You know, I don't read a lot of, um, you know, medical leadership or uh, you know, how to be a leader type books. What I do is I talk to a lot of other physician leaders a lot um, whenever I can network and, and ask them what works for you and, and what doesn't work. You know, what are the tricks of the trade? Um, you know, the one advantage of going to a lot of conferences and, and speaking externally is, is, is you get to meet folks and you get to share, you know, wins and losses and, and you can learn from them. I'm very open about uh, sharing what we do and with other organizations and even with competitors, you know, you know, um, how have you guys been able to do this? And then I'm sharing, this is how we do it. And then just comparing notes. I, I think that networking has been very valuable in my career. Thank you so, so much. Uh, that was so, so interesting. Was there anything else you'd like to say? No, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak and, um, you know, in summary, for particularly for younger uh, providers and physician leaders who, who want to get into this world, just be open to make changes in your career. Just because you get trained in one specialty doesn't mean that you have to stay there for the 30 years and not do anything else. Be willing to step forward and take chances. You know, I, I remember when I left Indian Health Service and I started in primary care and I worked, you know, in New Hampshire with this hospital organization, Concord Hospital, a great hospital. You know, the CEO was always asking for physician leaders to step forward to work on things like utilization management, population health projects, or looking at potential EMRs. And I was amazed um, how many physicians just didn't want to do that. They said, I don't want to be hassled with that. I just want to see my patients and don't bother me. And then as physicians, we step back and, and we have a tendency to complain that we're not involved with decision making. Well, that's because you never step forward and ask to take leader and, and volunteer to take leadership roles. To, so be, open to actually taking leadership roles, stepping forward to getting involved, 
and and don't be afraid to take a risk in your careers. You know, when I was 50 years old and I was practicing in Concord, New Hampshire, in a great practice, and my colleague from years ago in Shiprock, New Mexico, said, "You know, come out and do this adolescent medicine project for us for two years, population health project." I could have just said, "No, you're crazy. I'm not going to uproot my fa- my wife and." And, and go back out there. Fortunately, my last child was going off to college, so I didn't have to worry about complaining kids. But that was the best thing I ever did in my career. It really opened up a whole world of medical leadership that I, I had no idea going into it that it was going to lead to a leadership role at Atrius Health and then Hartford Healthcare and then Walgreens, then Hims and Hertz. If I, if I just chosen to stay doing my primary care practice in Concord, I'd be doing that today, which is still very worthy. Um, but it would have closed off a whole area of opportunity, professional opportunity for me. So to be open and, and you know, be willing to pivot in many times in your career. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.